Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAP Support Review podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young and Andrew Powell. Just to remember that this podcast is for medical education purposes only, not to diagnose that thing on your eye. We're ophthalmology residents who figure that reviewing for OCAPs, boards, or clinic are better when you don't have to do it alone. Each week, review a high-yield topic and talk about the why and the how. And this week, we're going to be talking about anti-VEGF treatments in the context of the AMD trials. Okay, so let's first review the basics about AMD. This won't be an AMD episode. We will do that later as we promise every week, but to review, AMD is caused by, no one, no, one actually, no one actually knows, but what happens is you get drusen, which are these buildups between the RP and Brooks layer, and that's dry macular degeneration. And then eventually you can get exudative macular degeneration where choroidal neovascularization can produce subretinal and intraretinal fluid, which eventually rapidly de- decreases vision. While dry macular degeneration decreases vision over the course of years to even decades, wet macular degeneration can decrease vision permanently more over the course of months, maybe even weeks. You know, for the longest time, there was no real treatment for wet macular degeneration. Eventually, something called photodynamic therapy, which we'll cover later, was developed, which helped somewhat, but wasn't, but wasn't a definitive treatment for wet macular degeneration. It was the gold standard up until the anti-VEGF agents came out, though. Right. And some of the trials we will look at compare directly anti-VEGF to photodynamic therapy, so you can get an idea about how effective photodynamic therapy was. But... The major advent of modern retina practice is the use of anti-VEGF starting in uh, the earliest trials were in 2004 and really took off in 2008. So let's back up. VEGF stands for vascular endothelial growth factor. This is what's produced that causes development of choroidal neovascularization. So the big advent was the development of pharmaceuticals that could bind to or prevent the action of vascular endothelial growth factor, otherwise known as anti-VEGF compounds. So Ben, what is it that these VEGF molecules are actually doing? And what is it specifically that the anti-VEGF agents we use prevent them from doing? Right, so VEGF actually does two main things within the retina. One is it promotes the growth of new vascular vessels, so new vessels that are much lower quality because these vessels don't have the parasites that normal vasculature has, and parasites... That's P-E-R-I sites. Peri, yeah, pericytes, not parasites. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> um, so you can think of parasites function as the mortar between the bricks. So endothelial cells are what makes, you know, your normal retinal and choroidal vessels, but you need parasites to kind of help bind them together. Otherwise, you'll have very leaky blood vessels, which is what happens in choroidal neovascularization. So VEGF promotes neovascularization without the development of parasites and also promotes leaking of blood vessels. So anti-VEGF, prevents the production of neovascularization and also reduces the leaking of blood vessels. And all these different anti-VEGF agents, some of them have different targets. There's not just one single VEGF molecule. There are actually five, even sixth form of the VEGF molecules. There's VEGF A, B, C, D, E, and then something else called placental growth factor, 
So exactly, there's many different types of VEGF. The main one to think about with macular degeneration is VEGF A. VEGF B also has some effect. Within VEGF A, there's nine different isomers. They all have a different number. The number refers to its molecular weight. What was thought to be the most pathologic isomer is VEGF 165. That's the one to remember because I can be quizzed on, on, on tests. You can try to remember 65 because 65 is the point that a lot of people retire. So it's like older people. So it's like age related. So 165 is the one that is not be pathologic. 121 is the most common one. And it's the one that is, there's the highest levels of at baseline. But then when the ratio of 121 to 165 changes, when there's more 165, that's when they get parietal neovascularization. But it's not super important to know the details of all the other ones. Also, as a side note, VEGFB is also active in macular degeneration to a lesser degree, but it becomes relevant when we talk about one of our anti-VEGF agents. So there's only four anti-VEGF molecules to talk about, and we're the only three to know. The first one I mentioned is just for historical purposes. So that first one is called pegaptinib, otherwise known as macugen. The name pegaptinib tells you what it is. It's a pegylated peg aptamer, aptinib. An aptamer is just either an oligonucleotide or a peptide that's specifically designed to bind to some specific target, in this case, VEGF A165. It was the first real anti-VEGF agent that was developed, and it does have some efficacies we'll cover in a little bit. But because other agents have been demonstrated to be superior, almost no one uses it in the United States at this time. The next one that came out that is used in many different branches of medicine now is called Bevacizumab, otherwise known by its trade name Avastin. Bevacizumab is a immunoglobulin. So to help visualize it, remember immunoglobulins are molecular lobsters. So each claw of the lobster was designed to bind to not just VEGFA-165, but essentially all isomers of VEGFA. And because of this, it was found to be more effective. We the and the reason behind macugen only binding to one sixty five is it was thought that perhaps it would reduce its side effect profile, but with all the trials of the vast and we found that that really isn't significant. It's not something that makes a huge difference in the side effect profile. After that was developed ranibizumab, also known by its trade name Lucentis. Basically, uh, ranibizumab is just the claw of the lobster. So instead of it being a whole immunoglobulin, they fragmented it into the claw of the lobster. They thought that it being a smaller molecule may mean it could penetrate deeper into the retina. And they also found that it didn't continue to penetrate and get absorbed in systemic circulation. So it was thought that it would, could possibly be superior to Avastin. And we'll answer the question of whether it was in one of the trials we'll discuss. And ranibizumab also blocks all isoforms of VEGFA, just like Avastin does. Lastly, the most recently that, that was developed was a flibercept, also known as ILEA. So yeah, a flibercept is kind of like a mutant lobster. It still has the body of the lobster, but instead of the normal claws that can bind to VEGFA or VEGFB or whatever, the claws are instead the native VEGF receptors. There's two receptors, one and two. It doesn't really matter, but one claw is VEGF receptor 1, the other claw is VEGF receptor 2. So not only does it bind to VEGF A, it also binds to VEGF B, as well as the thing we mentioned before, PIGF, which is placental inducible growth factor. And, you know, you can imagine that that's how this molecule got its other name besides ILEA, VEGF trap, because each claw is basically a trap for, for more types of VEGF. So to review, pigatinib or macugen, 
is this absolute molecule that only bound to VEGFA165. Avastin is a molecular lobster where each claw can bind to VEGFA. Ranubizumab, or Lucentis, is just the claw without the rest of the lobster that binds to VEGFA. And Eflibercept uh, or Ailea or VEGFTRAP all mean the same thing, is a mutant lobster where the claws are receptors. So VEGFA, B, and PIGF bind to those receptors. And that's all you need to know about the currently available anti-VEGF compounds. There's others always in development, like brosilizumab, but we're not going to go into those because they're not currently widely used. Now we're also going to briefly mention an element from something that we're not going to talk about again in the rest of this podcast, but the ETDRS, the Early Treatment of Diabetic Retinopathy Study. You know, this is this episode we're talking about the AMD trials, not the Diabetic Retinopathy Trials. But so many of the AMD trials used a very important element from this ETDRS trial, and that's the vision chart. The ETDRS was one of the first studies, I think, in the 70s. Am I right about I that? I will look that up. Study started in 1979. You're right. Nice. So everybody after that tended to use the vision chart that they specifically used. So a lot of the times, instead of the Snellen chart, which we commonly use in clinic, a lot of these research studies, like these AMD trials, they all made sure to be using the same vision chart from ETDRS, which is distinct from the Snellen in having only five letters per line with each letter evenly spaced apart from the others. So this gets to your graphic design element of kerning. The space between letters horizontally, the space between letters vertically, it's actually much more linear as far as how the steps go in a graded fashion from one line to the other. And it, it's important to know what that chart looks like that always has five letters so that when we tell you that, you know, someone had a six letter gain, that means that you had a line plus a little bit, no matter where their vision was. Okay. So um, there's really five major trials to discuss to get a basic understanding of how and why we use anti-VEGF in macular degeneration. There's definitely many, many more trials that are out there, but we feel like these are the backbone to help understand what and why we do the things we do. And maybe, and more importantly than how we feel about it, these are also the trials that are highlighted by BCSC. If there's a lot of demand, we'll do another episode that covers the other very important trials, but ones that weren't quite the flagship highlighted trials regarding treatment of exudative macular degeneration. So the first trial for anti-VEGF macular degeneration was called the VISION trial, Maybe you can remember this was the first one because vision is like the most basic. It's like calling it the eye trial or something. It's it like they, they kind of were first to market to grab a name. So they, they, they took the vision as a name. This is what tested macugen or pigatinib. So that's the kind of obsolete molecule we were talking about before. The main finding that they had was that compared to sham, 70% of patients had lost less than three lines of vision when they developed what macular degeneration compared to 55%. So, you know, this was a great result. It's the biggest result they ever had up to this point. Essentially, 15% more people would not lose vision in this uh, when you used macugen or pigatinib. But then that was quickly overridden by the next trial we'll talk about. So the next two trials are for how ranibizumab compared to either no treatment in sham or compared to PDT. The first of the two we'll talk about is the MARINA trial, which gave patients with macular, wet macular degeneration 
injections of ranibizumab every month. So all the patients who were treated in the MARINA trials all had minimally classic or occult CNV. So we, we did discuss this before, but at the time of these trials, there were two major types of CNV, choroidal neovascularization, in AMD. The first was classic. So this was bright lacy hyperfluorescence that leaks on fluorescein angiography. So that's kind of the standard thing you think about when you see neovascularization. You just see this bright lacy stuff. The other was occult. So essentially you have this, this either vascular um, net or fibrovascular net underneath the pigment epithelium that would show late leakage, but it'd be hard to see on fluorescein angiography because it was always under the RPE. So they have late leakage from an unknown source, but you could see the leakage. So classic is you can obviously see where the CNV is and the cult is where it's more difficult to see the source. So back to Marina, all these guys with these minimally classic or occult CNVs were getting shot in the eyes every single month, and they found that 95% of the eyes who got that ranibizumab actually experienced improvement in their visual acuity or stabilization, compared to only about 62% of the eyes that just got the placebo injections. Every time you talk to a patient about, are you going to get better, or is this just going to hold your vision steady where it is, to answer that more specifically, 40% out of those study eyes actually did improve more than 15 letters compared to the placebo injections. All right, so to compare it to the previous trial we talked about with pigatinib or macugen, this study showed that in Lucentis, 95% of patients either stabilized or improved compared to only 70% in pigatinib. So that's why, you know, no one ever really uses pigatinib nowadays. So going to step up, you are in the marina, now you're anchoring in the marina. The anchor trial compared monthly ranibizumab injections for patients with classic CNV compared to another experimental group of those patients who had classic CNV but were instead treated with photodynamic therapy instead. Is this where we're going to talk about what PDT is exactly? Yeah, we can just briefly discuss what what that is. So PDT or photodynamic therapy the, the idea was you give patients in a systemic injection of a dye, vertiporphyrin IV, and then that will go, you know, to their eye, just like in a, uh, like a fluorescein angiography. But this, uh, this dye molecule, vertiporphyrin, would activate and cause sclerosis of vessels when you shine a specific wavelength of light at it. So the idea was you essentially potentiate the vessels with this dye, and then you target the specific light at the vessels with neovascularization, so you could sclerose or occlude those vessels so they would stop leaking. That was the idea behind photodynamic therapy, and it did have some effect, but as we'll see with the anchor trial, it was inferior to ranibizumab. It's kind of a nice, elegant idea for a treatment, though it's a little like a smart bomb for targeting right where you want to target, especially in a sensitive place like the macula. Also worth to know that PDT still has a role in the treatment of other um, other retinal problems, particularly central serous chorioretinopathy. So the results of the ANCHOR trial were that, again, sort of similar numbers to the MARINA trial, actually. So the two complement each other quite well. For ANCHOR, again, this is for classic CNV, 95% of the ranibizumab-treated eyes actually maintained or improved their vision. But the PDT group... Only about 64% of that group maintained or improved vision. All of these results were maintained out to about two years as well. So the anchor trial definitively anchored the demise of PDT as 
first line gold standard treatment for wet macular degeneration. Another way to remember, because, you know, we're going to talk about a lot of names of different trials. Any trial that has like the name of something related to the C or something nautical is an anti-VEGF trial, generally with ranibizumab. So like Marina, Anchor, there's other trials you hear about too, like the Harbor trial and the Horizon trial that all, they all have to do with anti-VEGF or Anchor, um, or, or in more specifically ranibizumab. If it has to do with a mountain, then it's a PDD trial. So there is like a trial like the Everest trial and the Mont Blanc trial and all this stuff. So yeah, that helps you kind of to remember a little bit, then, then hopefully that's, um, that, that's good. The other thing to help you remember the difference between Marina and Anchor Marina studied minimally classic or occult, so it's an M minimally for Marina. And then anchor, like an anchor is kind of shaped like a C, you know? So that's for classic C and V. Like, like an actual anchor is kind of shaped like a C. So if that helps you remember, that's how I remember the difference between the Marina and anchor trial. Though in the end, they showed very similar results um, independent of the type of CNV that they use. So we don't, that's part one reason why we don't go out of our way to try to differentiate what type of CNV a patient has. Okay. So, you know, we, we've talked about how ranibizumab is this great medication to help with, with exudative or wet macular degeneration. But the question came up, is it superior to bevacizumab or Vastin? And that's, you know, a very clinically relevant question because of the current cost of those medications. We won't go into the exact cost because it can vary by region, but bevacizumab is significantly cheaper than ranibizumab. This question is answered or addressed by the CAT trial or the comparison of anti-VEGF treatment trial. The, <laughs> the other aspect of treatment that the study addressed is there were two ways to treat patients with exudative or wet macular degeneration, and that was with a monthly regimen, which is what both Marina and Anchor did just every month, no matter what, you get that injection. Or an as-needed regimen where instead of doing it every month, you wait until you see if they have wet macular degeneration. And if it's wet, if there's intraretinal or subretinal fluid, then you inject. So it compared both bevacizumab to ranibizumab as well as as-needed to monthly regimen. And what did they find? So they found that there was non-inferiority of bevacizumab compared to ranibizumab. So when they were... Both treated with both agents on a monthly basis, you got about the same eight letters gain for bevacizumab compared to eight and a half letters gain for ranibizumab. On an as-needed treatment basis, also similar to the bevacizumab people, they gained about six letters compared to the the ranibizumab people gaining seven letters or so. And they're able to comfortably call that non-inferior because the p-values were not significant for those differences. So then when they wanted to say, okay, we've figured that between the two, bevacizumab or ranibizumab, about the same, how about at least the treatment schedules every month versus treating as needed on a PRN basis? And they found that the percentage of patients who gained more than 15 letters was the same, actually, between both treatment schedules. So if you gave them either injection on a monthly basis, about a 35% gained more than 15 letters. If you treated them on an as-needed basis, about 25% of patients gained that many letters back. Again, 25% compared to 35% does sound like a pretty big difference, but it was still statistically insignificant. 
what they did notice was looking at OCT, the thickness of the retina, the decrease in central retina thickness was greatest with ranibizumab every month compared to all other groups. Anatomically, they have an improvement with Lucentis, like the central retinal thickness would be measured as decreased, but functionally, their vision, there wasn't a statistically significant difference between the two groups. Yeah. That's kind of what it is. Thanks. Thinking. That's a great clarification. Yeah. If the listeners have done a lot of following or treatment of macular degeneration patients, they may, you know, know of or use the treat and extend regimen, which is, was not addressed by the CAT trial. And, you know, that, that's been addressed by other trials that aren't one of the the core five trials we wanted to cover in this episode, but we may, we may cover that in another episode. Okay, so then we're almost done. The last trial we'll cover is really, it was two trials, but we'll talk about them together. It was the VIEW 1 and 2 trials, so VIEW 1 and VIEW 2 trials. This is the big trial that initially looked at a flibercept, otherwise known by trade name ILEA. To, to remind you, a flibercept is the mutant lobster, or it was thought to have more efficacy because it can trap more types of, of VEGF. It was, the, the results were it was found to be non-inferior to Lucentis, and in fact, a flibercept monthly gained more letters than monthly ranibizumab. The, uh, a flibercept monthly gained 11 letters compared to the monthly ranibizumab, which gained 8 letters. They also found that a flibercept with a loading dose of three months of Q month followed by Q2 month, so then they can skip every other month, was equivalent to ranibizumab every month. So the idea was that perhaps the flibercept is lasting longer than ranibizumab and also showed a safety similar, um, similar safety profile between the two. So this showed that a flibercept in some cases is superior to ranibizumab, which is why it's so commonly used today. And that's, that's the, you know, th- those are the, some of the core five trials. These are, these are the ones that are uh, highlighted by BCSC. So for border view, these are probably the, the highlights to know specifically for the treatment of macular degeneration. So just to review, we talked about anti-VEGF treatment for patients with wet macular degeneration. Okay, we looked at the VISION trial, which looked at pegatinib and found that 70% of patients had roughly stabilized vision, less than three lines of vision loss. Then we looked at the Marina and Anchor trials, which both looked at ranibizumab with for minimally classic or occult and classic CNV respectively, and found that they both had 95% of patients with either stable or improved visual acuity. But then we looked at the CAT trial, which compared ranibizumab with bevacizumab and found that they were roughly equal, except anatomically, but functionally they were approximately equal in their visual acuity improvement or stabilization. And finally, we talked about the VIEW 1 and 2 trials, which looked at a flibercept and found it was not only non-inferior to ranibizumab, but also with certain regimens gained more letters than ranibizumab. And that's it. That's it. Congratulations, Ben, for pulling us through yet another excellent no, retina summary. Yeah, <laughs> summaries. Hey. So um, if you liked what you heard, please, it helps us a lot if you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can find us on Twitter as well. We are at Eyes4Ears with the number four. And that's what we're going to go with for the rest of them. We're going to go with Eyes4Ears with the number four for Instagram. Uh, the website, which is www.eyes, letter number four, uh, <laughs> just <laughs> eyesforears.com with the number four instead of the word four, but you can still get there. 
Just a quick shout out as well, we have an ongoing survey of this podcast's educational efficacy. It's a research project sponsored by Yale University, where Ben and I are residents. There's a hun- raffle at the end of that survey for a $100 Amazon gift card. So we're going to hold this survey open for another two and a half months or so. You can find a link to it um, pretty much everywhere that you get our podcast from, including our website. So you can find or find, or find all of our things on the website and where you also find Anki decks, Anki flashcard decks as well, which we promise we will yeah, update we will. soon. I will, yeah, we yes. will do that, yes. <laughs> Okay, and that's all we have for this week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.